You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So here we are in Leviticus chapter 8. Let me pause and just say this as we get into Leviticus 8. That's a long reading. That's a lot of words and a lot of verses, and I have got to assure you this, that what I just read for you, those words are more powerful and better than anything I can speak in the next 40 minutes. All right, we read these over you because it is the word of God that he has given that perfectly reflects him, his nature, his character, and his heart for us. And so all of Leviticus 8 is sweet because our Lord is sweet. Leviticus follows directly after the stories of Exodus. Perhaps if you grew up in the church, the stories that you are familiar with. God had determined to call a people for himself through which he would redeem the entire world. In choosing this nation Israel that we read of, the Lord promises to be a God to a sinful, broken grievously frustrating people. And he doesn't just promise to be their God, he promises to dwell in their presence. He does this by commanding Moses to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place where his presence will dwell. But we read last week at the end of Exodus, at the culmination of the book, the tabernacle is finally constructed and consecrated. The glory of the Lord, his physical presence descends onto it. And Moses, the holiest of all of the people of Israel, is not able to enter it lest he be consumed by the glory of God. And so we ask the question, as we'll be asking all throughout this book, how can a sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God? We began to answer that last week as we looked at the offerings and sacrifices, specifically the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. We said that these offerings and sacrifices show us primarily that we can dwell in the midst of a holy God because of atonement. Atonement that is made only through the sacrifice of another, through the blood of another. And while Israel had goats and bulls and turtle doves that could only temporarily erase the effects of their sins, we have not a lesser sacrifice, but a greater sacrifice, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. Leviticus continues to answer these questions, the questions of how will Israel be the people of God and how will they dwell in the uh, the midst of God? And that's where we find ourselves now again today in Leviticus chapter 8. We have gone through in Leviticus 1-7 to all of the sacrifices that are instituted by God, and now we come to a new section. It begins in Leviticus 1-4 through as we read like this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Now as you read through Leviticus, as you're reading through with us corporately on Sunday as well as your own time during the week, 
when you read the Lord spoke to Moses, we know throughout the book that the story is progressing. That we're leaving an old section and we're moving into a new section. We said this last week. Why? Because the Lord moves the story of redemption forward. And so here is a new section. The Lord speaks to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, the garments, anointing oil, the bull of the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread. Assemble all the congregation, that's all of Israel, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the tent of meeting. Now this section is a section that is dealing with the ordination, the preparation, the commission of Aaron and his sons as priests. Now, one of the things I always want to be careful with when it comes to us studying the Word of God is, is to define words, because words have meaning. And so in our context, when I say that Aaron and his sons were being commissioned, prepared as priests, all of us come with that word with different backgrounds. I know that a lot of folks, including people in my family, come out of a Catholic background. And so priest has a very specific connotation. But the word, the office priest, here in biblical times was a mediator. It was one who stood between God and man. A priest was an ambassador, a chosen vessel that the Lord used. The first priests were Adam and Eve. They were vessels, ambassadors of the Lord. When the Lord says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, go out into all the earth, work it, subdue it. They were tasked as priests of God to take his glory, his presence into all of creation. This was the job of a priest. Now, in many ways, this passage with the commissioning of Aaron and his son as priests is simply a logical outflowing of the passages we read before. Why? Well, because God has given sacrifices and offerings to Israel, but those sacrifices and offerings, we are told by the Lord, are to be carried out by priests. Guess what Israel doesn't have so far? Priests. So guess what the Lord gives them? You guys are sharp. He gives them priests. A select few, Aaron and his son, he gives them priests. But there's actually more to the story than just what we find here in Leviticus. I think we have this passage. This is Exodus 9, 19, starting in verse 1. This is part of the priestly story. It says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came in the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped there in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's Israel, to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. 
for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The Lord commands Moses and indeed physically himself comes down Mount Sinai to speak directly to Israel. He tells them that they will be his people and that he will be their God and that he invites them to be not just his people, but a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. But Israel responds, and in many ways rightly responds, in fear. It says this in Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, this is the the, the presence of God. The people were afraid and they trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, No, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses speaks to the people. The Lord speaks to the people. He invites them to be a kingdom of priests, and Israel responds, We are unable. Because of our sin, we are unsuitable. They feared that they could not interact face-to-face with the Lord, that they could not be in His unmediated presence. And in the retelling of this story in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord actually says to Moses, they're right. They can't. They are rebellious and sinful. They will not keep my covenant. They are unholy. And so now, here in the book of Leviticus, we see the Lord commissioning priests. But He is not commissioning the kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel, all of Israel. It is but a select few people. Israel, as a matter of fact, is called to come and watch as Aaron and his sons become priests. It would have been, on one hand, A celebration for Israel knowing that they would have priests that could sacrifice on their behalf. And it also would have been a grieving time. Knowing that what was offered to their ancestors was not true of them. So the question becomes, will one day the Lord have an entire people of priests, an entire kingdom of priests, a truly holy nation who will all draw near to him who will all live in his presence who will all bring his glory to the earth and i won't make you sit waiting for an answer the answer is yes and the answer is you the answer is me the answer is the church and not the clergy of the church not the people that we call mistakenly priests nowadays the entire church. Here's Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Moses says that Israel will be. Peter says you are a royal priesthood. The church is a kingdom of priests. So let me ask the question. You feel like priests? Do you see yourself as a royal priesthood? Do you bear both the weight and the glory of living life in the presence of God, of bringing others to Him, of bringing His glory to the world around us? Listen, the answer for me is no. Oftentimes, I do not see myself as a priest of the living God. I do not see us as a truly royal priest with unmitigated, unfettered access to the Lord with a great, high, honorable calling. So why don't we? Well, I think it may be it's because we don't quite understand how we could have gone from common people, ordinary people, even enemies of the living God to a truly royal priesthood. And that's what Leviticus 8 is all about. One commentator named Jay Sklar, he says this about this ceremony that takes place in Leviticus 8, this commissioning of Aaron as priest. He says, generally, a ceremony brings about a change in status for the main participants through a series of rites that are directly related to the ceremony's purpose. The purpose, for instance, of a wedding ceremony is to change the status of the bride and groom from being single to married. And this is done through a series of rites related to this purpose. The exchanging of rings as a symbol of their love, taking vows of lifelong faithfulness, and so on. A wedding is meant to be a celebration, yes, but it's also an anchor point. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things that I always do that, quite honestly, people tend to feel like it, it's just something to get past, sometimes they're often frustrated with it, is we painstakingly go through each of the pieces or the rites of the actual wedding ceremony. Because each of those elements are meant to signify something powerful. So that as we live life, the rest of our lives, for instance, if you are married as husband and wife, you are meant to look back on those rights to realize what has actually changed in your life. That you have actually gone from two to becoming one. The same is true for priests. There actually is a ceremony. You may not know that it has taken place in your life, but it has. Aaron and his sons walk through this for all to see, and as we walk through it, my prayer today is that you and I would see how it is that we have gone from common to sacred, from enemies to priests, so that realizing what has been done, we might live out of that new identity. Three necessary rites that we see in Aaron and our priestly ceremonies. The first one we'll walk through is this. To become a priest, you need a priest. To become a priest, you need a priest. Second, to become a priest, you must be made holy. 
to become a priest, you must be made holy. And third, to become a priest, we must be ordained. To become a priest, we must be ordained. First, to become a priest, we need a priest. The story goes on in Leviticus verse 5. Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. Now Israel recognized that sinful humanity is not prepared to be a royal priesthood on their own. Therefore, until we are able, we need one to stand between us and the Lord. Israel, nor Aaron, nor his sons could simply walk into the presence of God, nor could they begin to serve as priests in his presence. Why? Because they would be consumed. When the very presence of God comes down on Mount Sinai, the Lord says, rope off the edge of the mountain, lest if the people come near, they will be consumed and die. And so here is Aaron, not more holy than the rest of Israel. Aaron, the same Aaron who formed the golden calves of idolatrous worship for the people of Israel who is about to become a priest, but until he is prepared to be a priest, he needs another to stand between him and holy God. And that other, the one who serves that function as mediator, the go-between here for Aaron is Moses. The Lord instructs Moses to bring Aaron and his sons near. The Lord instructs Moses to bring Israel near to the tent of meeting. The Lord instructs Moses to wash Aaron and his sons and prepare him as priests. So why can Moses serve as a mediator here? Well, to be a mediator, you have to be able to both identify with both parties. You know, my, my favorite part of a wedding ceremony is probably not the favorite part for most people. I love when the bride walks down the aisle. I love to look at the groom when he stares at the bride. I love the kiss at the end. I love the, the commissioning and the walking down the aisle. But my favorite part is when the father takes the hand of the bride and places it in the hand of the groom. Now, it could be that I have four boys and only one daughter, and so I'm really savoring that moment that is to come. Or maybe the Lord has given her the gift of singleness. Pray for your boy, okay? Um, the reason I love that moment, though, sorry, are we not allowed to be honest with each other as we, as we worship the Lord? Is that, is, that, is that how this works? Okay, that's good. Good. Remember, you're a priest too, okay? The reason I love that moment is that there is a transition in that moment. That's the moment when the wedding actually begins. And the Father serves as a mediator, a type of priest in that moment. Because he is called to identify with both the groom and the bride. He is a man that has cared for this woman. And therefore, he can identify with the groom who is about to take that same responsibility, a man to care for this woman. And yet, he is the father of the bride. 
He is a part of her family. And so he identifies with her as well. And it is his job to take the two of them and to place them together. That's the role of a priest. To identify with both parties in order to bring them together. Moses could identify with Aaron and his sons because he, like them, was a part of broken humanity. He, like them, had been tempted and he, like them, had even sinned. But he was also able to identify and stand before God because God accepted him. God even called him a friend. We are told that he spoke to God face to face. And so Moses serves as priests for the would-be priests. But there's one issue. Moses is not able to make all of Israel suitable to be priests. And quite honestly, he's not even able to make Aaron fully suitable to be a priest. How do we know this? We know it because in a couple chapters, we're going to see the failure of Aaron's sons. And in a few books from now, we'll see the failure of the entire Aaronic priesthood. Moses is not able to fully be the priest that sinful humanity needs. Why? Well, he can fully identify with broken humanity. But Moses is not able to fully identify, not truly identify with the holy God. Because he himself is not fully, completely holy. And he himself cannot even fully, completely enter into the intimate presence of God. This is why Aaron and the other priests could only enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, the place where the most powerful glory and presence of the Lord dwelt. But once a year, the high priest could enter. And even that took a ton of sacrifices and they entered with trepidation lest they entered still covered in their sin and would be consumed. This is why priests themselves needed continual daily sacrifices on their behalf. Aaron, his sons, all of Israel, all of sinful humanity needed a better, greater priest if we were to become better, greater priests ourselves. And Scripture tells us that we have it in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, it says this, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Hebrews 7 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for, for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered himself up, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son. That's Jesus, who has been made perfect forever. We, in Jesus, 
as our great high priest, have been brought into the presence of God by one who actually belongs in the presence of God, who actually is God in human flesh. He fully identifies with us, Hebrews 4 says. Tempted in every way, he felt our weakness in taking on human flesh, and yet he is fully, eternally, perfectly holy. He and he alone can take our sinful hands and lead us fully into the presence of God. To become a priest, church, we need a great high priest. And in Jesus, we have one. Second, to become a priest, we need to be made holy. The story goes on in verse 6 and following. Moses brought Aaron and his sons. He washed them with water put the coat on him, tied the sash around his waist, clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, tied the woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. He continues on after dressing him, and then he says he takes the anointing oil. He anoints the tabernacle, and then he anoints him. Then he anoints his sons. Then he takes the bull of the sin offering. He lays their hands on the head of the bull, And he kills it and sacrifices. Then he takes the ram of the burnt offering. He lays their hands on its head and then he sacrifices it. We talked about this last week, but to be face-to-face day after day with God is for us needing to be holy in order not to be consumed. One of the most powerful passages, in my opinion, in all of Scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, who we are told is a prophet of God and the holiest of all of Israel, has a dream, a vision. He has a dream of the presence of God in his holy temple. He's not actually there. It's a vision. And in the power of just a vision of the Lord's holy, glorious presence, the first words out of Isaiah's mouth are, woe is me, I am undone. I am consumed. To be in your presence, the holiest man alive, he paints a picture of like a a doll of yarn and someone just pulls on the single strand and the entire thing falls apart. This is what it means to be in the presence of God. And we spoke last week about the sacrifices how they were given to help atone for our sins, to free us and cleanse us. This ceremony reenacts both that burnt offering as well as the sin offering that we spoke of, but it adds another aspect. Aaron is made clean, then he is made suitable for his role. In being made clean, Moses performs two main rites for Aaron. The first is the burnt in the sin offering to atone for his physical sin, to to remove the sin from the presence of God. But the second rite is that Moses washes Aaron. That word wash that we find in verse 6 is the the same verb that's used for what the priests were to do to the entrails and the organs of the animals during the offering or sacrifice. It, it, It means to physically be cleansed of something. 
And it means that there is something that must be removed, something that needs to be removed. Here, Aaron and his sons are washed, are cleansed. It's a symbolic act that would signify the removal of stain and guilt. But it was just that. It was symbolic. No water could actually remove the stain of sin and guilt that clung to Aaron. But the book of Isaiah promises that one day something would come that could actually cleanse us. He promised, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And the Gospel writer John in his epistle tells us, Jesus fulfilled that. The blood of Jesus, he said, cleanses us from all of our sin. A priest is made holy by being cleansed. And we have that in Jesus. But a priest is also made holy by being made suitable. Aaron and his sons would be stripped in front of the congregation and then washed clean. After the washing, even after the sacrifices, their sin may have been atoned for. Their guilt may have been washed away, but it doesn't mean that they are yet dressed for their position. That's why Leviticus 8 goes into great detail to talk about the robes and the regalia that Aaron and his sons are clothed with. First, a coat, then a sash, then an ephod, a linen garment, a vestiture that was put over them, and then a breastpiece with the urim and the thummim, some sort of device that was used to, to ascertain the will of the Lord. Then the, the turban, or, or literally a, a, a crown, a headpiece that signified them as not just priests, but a royal priesthood. And then he anoints them with oil, making them suitable. Just like the greater cleansing that we have in Jesus, we have a greater regalia, a, a greater set of clothing that makes us suitable before the Lord. Again, Isaiah promises, I will rejoice greatly, he says. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself, or like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride as she adorns herself with her jewels. And again, we're told that Jesus has fulfilled this. Romans and Galatians says that He has become our sin and He has given us His righteousness. Why? So that we might now put on Christ. That we might dress ourselves in Him. Now here's the deal. This is a lot and it sounds theoretically really good. But this isn't just a theoretical thing. It's not just a symbolic thing to say that we are fully cleansed of our sin by Jesus and that we are fully clothed in His righteousness. Like, let's, let's just take a moment and be honest. All of us 
bear the marks of sins that we have committed. All of us remember choices or actions, thoughts, words, or interactions that we look back on with shame, that we look back on with guilt, that we long to take back. All of us feel the clinging nature of sin. All of us feel our own inadequacy. Like, and if you don't, You've got one of two things here. Either one, you don't actually understand your own sin, or two, by God's grace, you really, really, really believe the gospel. Those are the only two options. Like, and the reason I know it is because humanity is striving constantly. We are the most technologically advanced society that has ever existed. And we are the most anxious society that has ever existed. We can do more with the touch of a finger, and yet we are more exhausted, sleepless, unhealthy, and obese than we have ever been. Nothing that we can do can bring rest. Nothing we can do ever actually makes us feel okay, makes us feel whole, makes us feel content, makes us feel finished. But we are cleansed of that sin by Christ Jesus. And he doesn't just leave us cleansed and naked, exposed and inadequate. He also covers us with garments that complete us, that enhance us, that reclaim our glorious position that we had as creation, as his image bears, the perfect pinnacle of his creation. And so with humility, there should never be a room that you walk into where you feel less than. There should never be an instance that you come upon where you feel inadequate. There is never a place where you should be again covered with shame and guilt, where your head is bowed down low, where you feel unlovable and unsuitable because you are not. The royal garments of Aaron the high priest, the crown of King David, could not begin to compare with the righteous, glorious covering of Christ Jesus that you and I have already been given. We are priests and we have a mediator that brings us fully into the presence of God and God himself through Christ Jesus makes us perfectly, utterly holy. And so now finally we look to our ordination by God. Finally, to become a priest, we must be ordained. Beginning in verse 18, excuse me, verse 22, is the end of the ceremony. Aaron is prepared, he is cleansed, he is washed, he is dressed, and then finally we read, Then Moses presented the other ram. This is the ram of ordination. 
And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. He killed it. Moses took some of its blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. The Hebrew word here used for ordination means to be set. It's a a physical picture like a craftsman setting a jewel in a crown. It's to be positioned permanently, to be grafted into one place. This sacrifice, this offering of the ram of ordination, is the rite by which Aaron and his sons, now made suitable, are finally set in their position as priests. The blood from the ram was dipped on their right ear, their right thumb, and their right big toe, essentially signifying that they are covered from head to toe in the blood of this ram of ordination, that they are covered fully in ordination, that their entire being is set, accepted, commissioned by God as priests. At the end of this, they were then placed for seven days inside of the tent of meeting, inside of the courtyard of the tabernacle. Again, seven, a number that's routinely used throughout Scripture that harkens back to creation, that gives us a sense that creation is done, complete, God is creating here a new priesthood, a new people, a shadow of us, the royal kingdom of priests, His people, the church now. And Aaron and his sons, and as we will see, you and I are fully ordained, fully set, fully commissioned as priests. Now you might be thinking, I don't remember anybody slaughtering a ram and rubbing my ear and toes. It's coming at GC this week. It'll be fantastic. It's a way to thin out a church. They don't write about those in the textbooks. It's already happened. How do I know? Colossians tells us. This is Colossians 3. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have been set. You have been ordained. Where? With Christ in God. There will never Be a day, Christ follower, where your life is not permanently set in Christ, in God. There is never a day again where you will not be set in His righteousness, in His holiness, in His power, in His grace, in His mercy, in His presence forever and ever, as Randy Travis would say, amen. If you don't know it, go look it up. We have been placed with Christ in God. Church, here's what that means. You are and have been ordained, commissioned, set 
as a royal priest. There is no but. If you came to know Christ Jesus yesterday, then you are a royal priest. Go. Live in His presence. Serve Him. Bring His glory to all the earth and bring those who are apart from Him to Him. If you have failed utterly this past week, if you have fallen deeply in sin and addiction, you are a royal priest. Stand up. Look at your God and Father face to face. Enjoy the smile of His presence. Offer Him sacrifices of thanksgiving. Go into the earth bringing His glory and bring those apart from Him to you. You, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus, His Son, who has called you out of darkness, out of death, into His marvelous light. Hear these words. Once you were not a people, but now, now you are His people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received His everlasting mercy. You are a royal priesthood. And so we say to God our Father, praise be to you. Pray with me.